right. Thank you all very much. Well, as we continue in the series uh, leading up to Easter, we are continuing. Uh, we're, we're, our text is the scripture that, uh, that Alice, Allison read to you from way up there where no one could see her uh, very wonderfully. And I'm not going to reread it. If you want to turn there, though, I'll reference verses as I go. And so you're welcome to turn there. Uh, it's Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. And so following Jesus' triumphal entry that we talked about last Sunday, uh, that sort of began the last week of his life, or what we think was about a, the last week of his life, we see his constituency. We see his audience. We see the people around him start to shrink. Because you remember there were people lining the roads and they were shouting Hosanna to the Son of David and they were laying down palm branches and it was this really big thing. But as we see him keep going and, and beginning with today, we're going to see that crowd. In fact, beginning with last week, as he went and, and looked around in the temple, we saw it was just him and his disciples. And we're going to see this crowd continually shrink as he goes, as he gets closer and closer to the cross. And, and that really runs counter to the way that we are, that we think about, you know, what, what is important and what we value as people. I remember in seminary, one of the things that was just pounded into my head by mentors and, and other pastors was the importance of, of being connected to, to other pastors and to other Christians, you know, not just in your own church, but outside of that, having, a, to use a, a business term, I guess, having a network, so to speak. Have, and not just for, for business reasons, but for encouragement reasons and for support and, and just to have that connection. And so one of the ways I've tried to do that is, is yearly I will attend, if I can, the, the Baptist General Convention of Texas. And, and there's, that's a group that I just kind of relate to and have an affinity with. And uh, as much as, as I like the connection on one hand, it's also, uh, you know, if you're an introverted kind of person, it's kind of an introvert's nightmare. Uh, because basically what it consists of is lots of meetings and lots of small talk and lots of meals with people and, and lots of things like that. And then there's some worship and some business on the side. But what I found is that since I've made the effort and kind of forced myself to go is that you kind of get connected with that core group, with the people that are always there and doing things and, and you get to know them. And, and there's some value in that. There's some connection in that. Just like if you stay involved in a church for a while, you, you kind of get to know the core group, and, and those are your people. And, and that's, it's kind of the same thing. And, and just like a good Baptist church, if you have half, halfway of, of a mental competency, they put you on a committee. And so <laughs> I've, I've gotten the joy of being on one of those. But even that doesn't bother me all that much because it's one more opportunity where I kind of get to connect with some other pastors that, that I may not really know or, or see it otherwise. And uh, one year, it was this, this past year, I went, and there was, there was, it was the last worship session. And somebody was sitting behind me that just, I knew, I knew that, I, maybe I knew them. They just had that familiar look, and, but they were directly behind me, so I couldn't get a good look, you know, without turning around, and, and I figured I'd done that enough because they were kind of getting a little freaked out. This guy kept staring at them, and so I said, well, I'll stop and just wait till it's over. And when the worship service was finally over, I turned completely around to look, to get a good glimpse of who it was, and, and they had a name tag, uh, and I found out his name tag said John Music which, if you know, is Caroline Pollard's brother. 
And so I introduced myself, and he goes, oh, yeah, I think I may have been to your church once or twice for something. And so we got to visit for a little bit, and it was, it was just one more connection. And at the end of that, we did what everybody does that go to, goes to those things, and we exchanged information, and I haven't called him or emailed him once. You know, you don't, that's not really why we, you do that, but you do that just to have one more connection. And that's, that's true, I guess, in, in the ministry world. That's true. It's just true everywhere. We, we value that. We value connection. You remember when Facebook first came out, they had, uh, they still have them, but you have your own personal little wall. And, and that's the way it was formatted. Everybody had their own wall, and they didn't have what they call now as the news feed, you know, that central area where anything you post on your wall can, can appear there for people to see. You just had your own wall. And the only way you knew what I had to say was to go to my personal wall. And, and that's kind of tedious, you know, if, if you want to go see what Matt has to say or, or EJ or someone else, you have to go to their wall. And so Facebook created this news feed where everything that everybody says or posts is, is centralized and it's all right there. And that was pretty neat for a while until it began growing rapidly where people were just posting things every millisecond. And it got to the point where it was impossible for you to get on there and really see everything that everybody posted because it was just constantly being updated all the time. And so they came out with this, this logarithm that they utilize for every person. That, and it's based, it's based on a lot of things. It's based on your interest. It's based on who you're friends with. It's based on keywords that might be used in a post to choose what they show you. And, and so that's the way it works now. You may, you may or may not get to see everything that is posted. And that's okay, because I don't know if I need to see every single thing that's posted. And, you know, I get sucked into that, and next thing you know, it's been 30 minutes, and I've just been scrolling. It's just got to stop. But the bad part, where, where businesses had, had kind of taken up space in, in the, that world, they, they got upset because they didn't want people not to see their posts. They would post things and advertise things. And so Facebook came out with this. Of course, it was a chance to make money. They came out with this way of boosting your posts. And you can give money. And they will guarantee that, that if you give so much money, so many people will see this post. If you give this much money, so many more people will see your post. And so you get it. The more money you give, the more people stand a chance at seeing that post. And why would you not to? Why would you not want to? Especially if you're a business and you want as many connections and contacts as possible. Last week, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we we see this incredible opportunity. If he would have been a businessman, if he would have been an advertiser, everybody was just clamoring for him and, and showering him with this attention. And if he had business sense. He would have stopped when he got to the end of that procession right in front of the temple and he would have stood up on a platform and given a rousing speech. He didn't do that. Or, or he would have told people, hey, this is my plan. I want everybody to join me and, and we're going to do this great thing. But he didn't do that. Instead, we see him today entering into the temple courts. And, and in the scripture you heard read, we see him do Two things that are just really strange for someone that, that people think is the Savior and the Messiah and is going to do this great work. We see him curse a fig tree. What did the fig tree do? I mean, that's really strange, isn't it? He curses a fig tree, and then he drives out those that are selling and changing money in the temple. And the reason is 
His concern is not getting a bunch of people around him. His concern is not having as many connections as possible. His concern is to help people be connected to God, devotion to God. And so he narrows his audience by framing devotion to God in certain ways. And the certain way, the first way that we see with the fig tree is he frames devotion to God in productivity. That's why he's, he's cursing it in the fruit. And, you know, as his disciples are walking toward the temple, Jesus, I, I'm just assuming maybe he just experiences a hunger pang. Maybe he just got hungry. Maybe that was the, the emphasis to, to stop and, and look at this fig tree. You know, when we read the Gospels, we see different themes in Jesus' teaching and what Jesus says and what he does. And uh, it's interesting if you look in, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, you see the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain. And they're essentially the same thing, but there's a, a few things that, that are different. And so you get the idea that Jesus walked around and he had these teachings and he probably taught the same idea, the same thing. Maybe a little different here or a little different here. And he just taught it in different ways and in different circumstances. There's also a parable in Luke about a fig tree. And Jesus tells this parable and he says, now, this fig tree continually did not bear any fruit. In fact, there were three years that passed. The fig tree didn't bear any fruit. And, and the guy that owned it was getting ready to cut it down. But the vine dresser says, wait, let me cultivate the soil. Let me fertilize it. And then if it still doesn't bear fruit, you can cut it down. And that's where the parable ends. He just leaves the people hanging because Jesus is like that. And that's what he does. And so as he's walking toward the temple, he sees a fig tree for whatever reason. And I think this teaching kind of bubbles up to his mind. And now he has a chance not to just give this teaching, but to physically demonstrate it. And so he curses this fig tree. And this is the only supernatural event that Jesus is directly involved in that has kind of a negative result. And it bothers us a little bit. Jesus is the poor fig tree. He didn't do anything. In fact, Mark even tells us this is not the season for figs. It wasn't expected to have any fruit on it. But I don't want to dwell on that because I don't think that's the point. More important is the point that Jesus is, is trying to teach something to his disciples. He's trying to show them something through an object lesson. And he goes out of his way to tell his disciples that, that, that he cursed the fig tree. And Mark tells us that his disciples heard this. They heard him curse the fig tree. And then he goes on and he has this encounter with, with people that are selling things in the temple. And really, those are the people that should have been the most fruitful, the most productive for God, if you will. They, they, they were people like the chief priests that were there, and, and, and they should have been the most productive for God. And his disciples see this, and at the very end of all that, Mark makes another note. And he says, they saw the fig tree. They saw what happened as a result of Jesus' cursing. It was was lifeless. You see, I think the reason that for Jesus and his followers, the, the reason that it was easy for them to sort of hold on to religion as, as maybe a, a shelter and, and to turn to religion as something to protect them is, is also the reason that some people are turned off by religion today. Because in Jesus' day, it was, life was difficult. You know, if, if you could you know, go find a religious identity and that could be what you were about and it could keep you from having to work too hard, you know, like some of the chief priests. That's, that was an attractive thing. It might prolong your life a little bit. But in today's world, we're all producing something most of the time, whether we do it as a hobby or whether we do it as a job or whether it's just, uh, just something we decide to do on the side for fun. We're, we're, all, we're always producing something. 
And so the question for us to ask is, is the things that we do, the things that we go about that we're concerned about, are those the things, is, is God included in that? Is God involved in that? Are we including God in that? You remember the old cartoons, um, Sylvester and Tweety, Wiley Coyote, and something bad would happen to them. They'd finally, you know, Wiley Coyote would finally run off the side of the cliff for the hundredth time and he would die, you know, or Sylvester would blow himself up trying to catch Tweety. And, and then it would show them in, in heaven, and they'd be floating on a cloud, and they'd be playing a harp, and they'd have angel wings, you remember? And, and did they look happy? No, they'd be in the cloud, and they'd be real mad that they had died and they were in heaven. And I always thought, well, there's some irony in there because you're supposed to be happy. But when you really think about it, they spent their whole life scheming. They spent their whole life chasing something. And now they just have to sit there on a cloud. So I guess if I thought that's what heaven was all about, I probably wouldn't be too excited about it either. It'd be kind of boring, wouldn't it? That's not what God has created us to do. He didn't create us just to sit there and, and, and to bury ourselves in religion like, like some of the chief priests were doing that Jesus will we'll talk about how he speaks out against. What role does faith play and what we produce. Frederick Bigner has this quote that I love. He says, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. It's this idea that, that, that it's not just about going to be a pastor. It's not just about going and, and doing this thing in church. It's about everything that I do somehow and including God in that and letting that be my, my God-called vocation. I love the, the character Tevi in Fiddler on the Roof. He has these conversations with God. Have you ever seen that musical? And, and some of them are, are just a little bit almost, you know, uh, I don't know, not what we'd say religious enough. You know, he, he kind of talks to God with a little bit of cynicism, but he's honest with God. And, and he has this one line that I love. He's, he's talking to God about being poor, not having enough money. And he says, I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor but it's no great honor either. So he says, would it be terrible if I had a small fortune? I mean, come on, God, you know, would it be that bad of a thing? And he's speaking tongue-in-cheek, but he's, he's trying to work his, his, what he understands his role in life is and, and how it's connected with God. He's working that out. Jesus frames connection to God, devotion to God with, with productivity. And as a result, he also, this maybe is, is the other side of that, he frames uh, connection to God, devotion to God with, with being selfless as well. Not just producing something, but doing so in a selfless manner. The people that are buying and selling things in the temple courts, they weren't trying to trick anyone. They weren't trying to swindle anyone. You know, we, we remember, some of you remember the days when people, when we had door-to-door -door salesmen. That's, that's not as much of a thing as it used to be. Uh, people go around selling things from, you know, combs and vacuum cleaners, uh, Bibles. We get this, this generic idea of the greasy Bible salesman, you know, that wants to make you pay a bunch of money for a Bible. Uh, you remember those days, and you didn't have your phone. You couldn't take your phone out like I can when I'm in SeaWorld, and I don't want to pay $40 for a well. You couldn't take it out and say, well, I could go buy this at Walmart or, or something for a lot cheaper. You, you couldn't do that. So you had to deal with that guy if you were interested in what he was selling or, or not. Just decide not to. And, and there probably were some salesmen that were honest. I think Billy Graham actually sold combs for a little while uh, before he made it big. There were probably some that were pretty honest. But because of the nature of, of the job and because of you know, people were not very informed as they are today, 
there were some that I'm sure that took advantage of others. That's not the case with the people that are selling things in the temple. They're not greasy Bible salesmen. They're people that are selling something that is actually serving a purpose, as we talked about last week. It's providing animals for people to perform sacrifices. It's converting money into the currency needed to pay the temple tax. The problem was not what they were doing. The problem was where they were doing it. And Mark uses this phrase that is that the only other time it's used is, is, is when Jesus, or, or it's not the only other time, but another time it's used is when Jesus talks about driving out and casting out demons. It says Jesus was driving out the merchants in verse 15. He uses a strong word. And I think the reason he uses such a strong word is because he recognizes that that is serving a sacred purpose, that, that those outer courts was where Gentiles worshipped God. That was the only place they could come and connect to God. And sure, it wasn't inside the temple. It wasn't keeping Jews from being connected to God, but it was keeping another group from being connected to God. And, and so that's why Jesus is so angry. That's why Jesus is so upset. It's like I asked the little kids, can you imagine if you came to church and during our worship service, we just had someone like walking through the aisles selling Bibles or something? You'd say, that'd be pretty distracting, Matt. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be very happy about that. Well, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's keeping them from being connected to God. But the money they were making was going to something good. They were being productive. I'm sure they were taking that money and they were feeding their families with it. I'm sure they were saving some of it. I'm sure they were trying to take care of themselves with it. Is that such a bad thing? Well, no, but it's not a selfless thing either. I read a story about a, a doomsday prepper. Uh, I think there's a show about doomsday preppers now, but I read this, this article about a doomsday prepper, this guy that had spent uh, just his entire life, he was 74, and he spent his life preparing for just the end of the world. And he had one of those fallout shelters, and he had, it, had different, it had several kitchens in it, had showers, just everything you'd need if there was some kind of horrible apocalypse. And the most impressive thing was how much food he had. He had those huge, those huge barrels. He had 80 of those barrels, and he estimated that he could take those barrels and feed about 84 people for four months. Probably wouldn't good. Probably wouldn't you know anything you'd want to eat, but it would sustain you and keep you alive. And so this guy gets to the end of his life, or, or, or towards the end of his life, and his wife gets really sick, and he had invested so much in this that he just he didn't have the money to take care of her. Uh, like he should and he ended up losing all the money that he had he ended up losing even his property was foreclosed on and she ended up passing away and so there he is without a wife uh, without any property without any money and he's got all this food and he doesn't really know what to do with it and then he meets a man this was in 2017 he meets a man from Puerto Rico you remember Hurricane Maria went through Puerto Rico and then they suffered some other natural disasters and and they were just hurting really really bad and so they asked, he asked him, he said, can I give all this to you? Because otherwise it, it all goes to nothing. And so he did. And, and there's some redemption in that. But the sad part is it took the death of his wife, it took a financial crisis to shift his concern, to shift his awareness of just himself onto someone else, onto other people that really needed all that he had. God approves of hard work, but not in ways that are exclusive are hurtful to others. And so uh, maybe some of the people that, that need to guard against that the most maybe are people like salesmen. Some of you have jobs where, where you sell things. And 
uh, it, it is tempting. It's tempting to think, well, it, what is the most money I can make in this situation for selling this? As, as pastors have to guard against that. You know, as, as a pastor, uh, I have to depend on people to do stuff at church. And, and so one of the questions I have to ask is, am I trying to get people to do something because I just want them to do that? Or, or is this something we feel like God wants us to do? We all have to be on guard against that. And then there are plenty of excuses for all of us, aren't there? Or regardless of what you do, to think about or to avoid thinking about how does, how does my work, how does what I do affect others positively or negatively? You know, we'll say something like, well, you know, it's not really my job to think about other people. I've, I've got a family to take care of. What, what, what should I worry about others for? I've got my own cares, my own worries, my own concerns. But if work hinders you or your families or someone else's connection to God, it's not selfless. It's selfish. And Jesus frames devotion to God as being selfless. Finally, Jesus' following is minimized, and this is a very simple one, but when we see in this passage that, that his teachings are amazing, uses that phrase as people were amazed at his teaching. And, and because of that, his, his following is minimized even more. Verse 18, the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching in the latter part of that verse. What teaching is it talking about? Well, most immediately it's talking about you know, what he did in the temple, the turning of the tables, but it's talking about his, his teaching overall in general as well. It was, it was amazing, and the reason it was amazing was because nobody else dared do what Jesus did. They knew it was wrong. They knew that we, in the Gentile courts of the temple, you weren't supposed to sell things. That was a bad thing to do. But they probably thought, well, is, is it really, it's not really hurting Jews. It's not really hurting God's people. And and, and, you know, the chief priests, they're, they're allowing it to happen. So, so we're not, we're not going to touch that. We're not going to deal with that. And this amazement by the people ultimately hastens Jesus' Jesus's death. Because it's not only the teachers of the law anymore. It's also the chief priests. When you read through the Gospels, the people that are mostly mad at Jesus are the teachers of the law, the, the scribes, if you will, because those are the people when Jesus is going through and he's teaching things, you know, they get mad at Jesus because he heals someone on the Sabbath, or they get ticked off because Jesus tells a parable and it's really more convicting to them than it is the regular people. And so those are the people when Jesus gets to this point in his life, we're not really surprised that the teachers of the law want to kill Jesus. But now Jesus is on someone else's turf. He's on the chief priests. And the chief priests were exactly what that title implies. They were the bigwigs. They were the, at the top of, of, of the Jewish you know, priestly order. And they were the bosses. And their families were even included in their little group. And you know, I know that you're not supposed to sympathize with the bad guys. But as, as someone that preaches, as someone that teaches, as someone that's kind of, you know, you deal with public opinion sometimes, I, I kind of do. I kind of understand how they may have felt. I was visiting with a pastor friend this past week, and he was telling me how uh, a big group in his church had went to this conference. And I know Dwayne and a group of our guys went, so this is not a dig at y'all. They really had went to a conference. And, and they were talking about how they heard this, this celebrity preacher speak and, and how amazing he was. They were amazed by his teaching. And, and he, was, he was speaking to me about that. He said, you know, I guess if I had like four or five sermons that I preached, you know, and that was all I ever preached, people would be amazed at what I had to say too. But I preach every Sunday. So don't, don't you know, pastors, we have egos too, okay? We're not perfect. 
but he was telling me about uh, when he was in Bible college. He went to a Bible college of a famous preacher. And, and I didn't know this, but he said this, this famous preacher has, has a group in his church, and their job is to listen to every sermon that he preaches and to rate it. And at the end of the year, he takes the top four or five sermons that are rated the highest, and those are his conference sermons. Those are his public sermons. And, and he edits them, and he sharpens them. And so, yeah, every time he speaks at a conference, people are amazed at his preaching. That's just not fair. That's not fair that they get to do that. But the thing is, you know, I can't, you can't compete with that. The thing is, you're not supposed to. Because if you heard a sermon like that every Sunday, well, then that would just become old hat as well. That'd become just a normal, regular old Pastor Matt sermon, you know, as well. It wouldn't be special. It wouldn't be a conference sermon. But it was Jesus' regular sermons, his everyday preaching, his normal illustrations, his, his actions that, that connected to a teaching. It was those things that the people were amazed by. And I don't think any of us would willingly cast ourselves in the roles of, of the chief priests or the teachers of the law. But the truth is, we're probably more like them than we were the everyday crowds that Jesus has taught. We're, we're regular church people. We're here all the time. Most of us have gone to Sunday school or Bible study, and, and many of us have gone to something beyond that, like a discipleship uh, discipleship training, or, or some of you got, remember before that, training union, and uh, we do small groups. We have all these things that we go to, and, and, and we're just, we know what it's like. We're part of it. We've heard it. Uh, you know what Pastor Matt's sermons sound like. You know that when you, some of you said, uh, Charlene usually sits right there and says, well, when my peppermint's about gone, we know the sermon's about over. You know, you just know the ebb and flow of church life. And for us, our devotion to God is a lot of things. It's it's comforting, it's traditional sometimes, it's routine, it's familiar, and, and those are good things. But it doesn't always, it's not always amazing. And the reason is not because we're not emotional enough, or not because we don't hear enough conference sermons. I think it's because we don't really get, or we don't really think about what Jesus taught. When you think about what Jesus makes available, what, what the offer of the gospel is in Scripture, it's really a paradox. Because we all know John 3.16, that scripture that says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever, anyone that believes in Him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. But the same Jesus also said in Matthew, Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to that life. He's talking about the same life that's available to all. It's a universal offer. But the people that get it, it's a very narrow road. That's a paradox. And I think the reason it's like that is because of the way that Jesus frames the life of a disciple. He talks about it as being selfless but productive. That's a paradox, isn't it? It's selfless but it's productive. And it doesn't look like the productivity that maybe we normally associate with being productive. It looks like prioritizing prayer and worship over work. It looks like making difficult and sometimes unpopular decisions for our families because we have boundaries and we have things that we know God is concerned about. It looks like letting Jesus' words challenge us and exhort us instead of just assuming we're, we're past that point of being amazed anymore in our walk with the Lord. Jesus narrowed his audience when he called true disciples. And that's a calling that requires us to continually try and narrow down the way that we look at following him and applying that to our lives.
Let's pray together. God, as we think about Christ and we think about what he called his disciples to, knowing that he was going to die, God, I pray that we would never assume that you know, we're, we're, we don't have to consider that, that we don't have to consider how that applies to us. Help us not to assume that there, we're always on the in crowd. And God, when things are, are just normal and, and traditional and routine, we thank you for that. But at the same time, help us to be amazed, even in that, and what Jesus has made available to us, the life that he calls us to. Help us to look at what we do, whether it's just a regular job or uh, staying home with kids, just the routine things that we do, and, and help us to recognize how we can connect to God in that and connect to others in God through that. God, if we need to decide something or make a decision or profess something today, would you lead us and guide us? Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.